Since last spring, our bodies have been under attack. It started last March with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic that would eventually close down the world for more than a year. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called, which produces pneumonia-like symptoms. Three people have already died from this illness, which has spread to at least three other Asian countries. Before we could even come to grips with the coronavirus, America was forced to confront another pandemic. But this public health crisis is not new. It's been interwoven into the fabric of our nation since before its birth. A new report confirms that hate crimes against the Asian community have surged across several of the nation's major cities. The data comes from California's... I'm your host, Jonifer Fields. I'm Jonah Chester, and you're listening to Refrangible, a production of the Center for Design and Material Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Over the past three episodes, we've explored the idea of material culture through a series of inanimate objects. For our final episode of season one, we wanted to take a look at something we all use and have a very personal connection with, our bodies. When we started Refrangible, The goal was to talk about objects through a new lens and use them as a way to understand ourselves. We wanted to build a community during a pandemic that demanded that we stay away from each other. We've talked about pamphlets distributed during World War II, the Maypole, and sewing machines. However, when you think about the one thing that we truly have in common, it's our bodies. The fear and uncertainty of the current pandemic forced us to think about our bodies in new ways. Self-care took on a whole new meaning, and personal choices about what you do with your body had an impact on your entire community. So, as we continue to fight these attacks on our body, be they from a virus or systemic racism, we want you to ponder the question, how do I interact with my body? And what can that self-interaction teach me about myself, my community, and the culture we all share? like to think that when it comes to taking care of myself, when I know better, I do better. However, I have access to health care, and there are way too many who don't have that privilege. Unfortunately, this isn't new. There have always been people who've had not enough or even worse, the wrong information when it comes to being able to take care of themselves and their bodies. It's part of our history. Before there was any governmental oversight of products intended to be ingested into our bodies, the industry for selling false promises of improved health was alive and well. What you didn't know could possibly kill you. 120 to 130 years ago, potions for weight loss, improved energy, and cures for whatever ails you didn't appear in your social media timelines. They arrived via horse and wagon and eventually a newfangled thing called the automobile. Joe Kapler is the curator of cultural history at the Wisconsin Historical Society. When we started talking about bodies, I really wanted to see physical evidence from a time when we knew less about how to care for health concerns that still plague us today. We are standing in the collection and archives of Wisconsin Historical Society in front of about 16 problems dating back to the early 1900s. Joe calls them products and implements, and I just can't find the lie. 
Within reach, it's a product promising to cure worms. At the end of the table, it's a contraption promising hair growth. While I laughed a lot at these products and their ridiculous claims, preying on people's fears and hopes from relief from pain isn't funny. This is in an era before heavy regulation and truth in advertising. The bottom line, you didn't know what you were getting in spite of how compelling the marketing materials were. Absolutely proven that you will not become ill. How do you know that? They probably don't, or they do know because it's just sugar, flour, or something like that. They know it's not going to kill you because there's nothing to it, right? You know, I could I could see that uh, as well. Um, but they're a, probably a much less litigious society at the, that time. But you know, legal recourse is a way to keep these people honest. Legal recourse and running them out of town on a rail. I mean, how many movies? I can't think of, of course, I can't think of one right now. But there's so many where you see the wagon pull up, you know, and you see the locals come out and you hear the the person who is the... The huckster man. The huckster man. The huckster man comes out, usually in the suit. selling you... Snake oil. You've heard, you know, people have heard of the... It's now a metaphor. A snake oil salesman. So snake oil being something kind of a mystery. Here is Rattlesnake Bill's liniment. Wait, wait a minute. This is genuine diamondback rattlesnake fat oil. Probably just the oil pressed out of. If it really is that, uh, would would be the oil pressed out of a fatty tissue. Yeah. So it very well could be. Do I think it? Cures, rheumatic pains, pains in the back, strains, sprains, bruises, sore, aching feet, stiff joints, sore muscles, throat irritation, nasal irritation, headache, earache, toothache, corns, calluses, bunions for external use only. Uh, I don't know how then you, you deal with toothache for external use only. What you see when you're looking at all these products and these packages is they're all targeting those aches and pains and things that legitimate medical science in 1905 and in 2021 can't necessarily get their arms around. You can't x-ray it. You can't image it. Um, It's those aches and pains in the human condition that we'd like to see go away. I'm not even going to lie to you, Joe. I was nervous when you just picked that up because we don't know what that is. It, for the listener, it's sealed in a bag, and it's also in, it's still in a sealed container, and the liquid is kind of an amber, an amber-looking liquid. That is a concern in historical collections with older pharmaceuticals. The material at the time may have been dangerous, but still sold. Um, or over 100 years, that material has evolved and, into something else or something that's toxic or unstable. Um, so, you know, museums around the country, including us, have worked to identify, isolate, and then remove those materials from the collections, you know, using professional, you know, hazmat handlers. I would say on the whole, you know, that's just a fraction of the materials. I think most of it is probably always was fairly ineffective and inert and is probably fairly inert today. 
And you know, th that seems to me, Joe, that seems to me that that's the only way. I mean, we're talking about a time where, pe time where people are traveling by horse. It's slow moving. You're not on the internet. You can't Google. You can't text somebody, mm -hmm. oh my God, OMG, I just bought some snake oil from Snake Oil Harry and it made me sick. These people have to outrun their reputation. Mm -hmm. And so you can't have people dying along the trail. I, I don't know when the phrase entered language, but I'm sure it was a long, 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 long time ago. If something sounds too good to be true, <laughs> you know, uh, there's so many of these that it's just, it's, they're pretty laughable from a 21st century perspective. Put yourselves in the shoes of someone a hundred plus, uh, you know, hundred years ago, 120 years ago, let's say 1900, you know, would they have the contextual knowledge that we do today? And their back is sore or they have this nagging cough and they want or hope for a remedy and willing to try anything. Today, we still are looking for that miracle cure, that miracle diet, that miracle thing that's going to make us younger, better, faster, thinner, taller, or whatever that may be. Hair potions, we're still looking for that now. And people are still selling questionable sure. potions. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think that's part of the human condition. I think the difference between now and then is, theoretically... Whoever, uh, whoever is creating these and, and pitching them and, and marketing them, um, you know, they're also then a bit responsible for what happens to their product uh, as well. Uh, and, and, you know, those consumer protections that we have come to really trust. But the idea of, of simple relief of aches and pains or dealing with those pesky wrinkles or graying hairs or receding hairlines you know, that's hardwired uh, into us. And so I'm holding in my hand here, this is a box, um, contained three bars of soaps. This is small hand, hand soaps. This is Lamar Reducing Soap, distributed by Lamar Laboratories of Cleveland, Ohio. And you can see on the package, wash away fat in years of age, reduce with soap. So this simple soap, if you use this soap, as the graphic on here would seem to imply, you be, lose weight and become younger. The graphic shows uh, the transformation of an older, heavier woman to a younger, thinner woman just by using the soap. I, I got to wonder at whatever time, 1910, 2010, someone would look at that and could think that that's possible that just simply using a soap would turn back the clock. Somebody put a lot of energy and effort and then money into that packaging because the packaging, it's actually, what would you call it? Ecologically sound. It's, it's, it's cardboard. Mm -hmm. It's paper. It has that medical sort of gray-blue mm -hmm. tone to it. If you walked past this in the, if you walked past this in the store now, it would look like something that would have been prescribed to you. It's that sort of packaging. You see officialness. You'll, fee you'll see official seal of some entity. Who knows what that entity is or um, trusted. Yeah, I remember growing up as, uh, and hearing commercials on television, four out of five dentists recommend. Really? You know, it's, as a seven-year-old, 
I called BS on that, right? Four out of, oh, did you go around and ask, you know, I don't believe that first, you know, I didn't believe that's a natural maybe skeptic in me. So, how, you know, how do you prove it? You know, did they have a footnote there, you know, based on a study of 3,417? Yeah. No, they never, mostly they never say that, you know. So, you know, <laughs> you, you see so much official language on here that, again, from our 21st century perspective, it's just you roll your eyes. And I remember guaranteed to, so it's guaranteed to, guaranteed to bring you a full or happy, guaranteed to. Just words. Just, just words. Just words. Talk is cheap, right? You know, and who's going to be around in a month or a year to say, you know what? That didn't bring me happiness. What's, what would be your recourse? The box that we have holds three bars of soap. Two remain. So I'm guessing someone used this, maybe didn't, dis didn't discover the desired results um, and, and stopped using it, or maybe they used it once and the stuff was nasty or something or caustic or something like that. We don't know who uh, had this or when. What's written on the inside? Uh, so somebody wrote at some point, circa 1921. So... Uh, we have, at the Wisconsin Historical Society, we have hundreds and hundreds of these types of products, patent medicines and natural medicines, and, um, and a lot of those came from kind of historical pharmacy collections. So this is probably someone um, who was assembling a collection, um, uh, was doing a little research or doing an, estimate, uh, an age estimate, probably uh, by looking at the graphics. You can kind of get something. You can get a decade certainly by looking at fonts or clothing styles. So they they thought this is circa 1921. Um, I think that's about right. I'd put it a little maybe circa 25, given the uh, flapper-inspired dress that the young woman is wearing in the wash away years of fat and age. <laughs> years. Just wash it away. Wash it away. You know, that, that, to, that to me is, uh, I fold that one because that's probably, that and the snake oil, the literal snake oil are the two examples where it's just right in front of your, in front of your face. Like some of the, uh, really? This is another one here. Pascola, a flesh-forming food, artificially digested for thin, pale people. Theoretically, if you or someone you know or maybe your child is thin and pale or sickly or something like that, um, that's probably, could be uh, a symptom of something else. Um, and it's not about just fattening them up a little. That'll make them healthy. You know, it's about the root cause. But this is bypassing all that and just trying to make them right, look normal, Right. What does this say and all, here? And all wasting diseases. So, again, that's treating a symptom and not a cause. Let this, like, even, even if this worked, it would just be treating a symptom and not a, and not a cause. Superseding cod liver oil. It will be assimilated into, you know, into your body. It will be assimilated without any digestive effort. Again, so all these, are, you start reading um, in, in these large pamphlets here. There's never any work. It, you know, it's just, it's easy there's no, they don't call them side effects. There's no ill effects. You know, it's, it's all so unbelievably too good to be true in their language. 
I sometimes I feel like, you know, just stop. You should have stopped at page one. But you have five pages of spewing, you know, BS. Uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know, some of these things worked, and I'm sure a lot of these were spectacular business failures. Probably most. And what's, what's interesting, too, when you have, it's easy, it's, you don't even have to digest it. So then that stands for reason. If it doesn't work, you're not, either you've not taken it enough, but somehow you've done something wrong. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not the product, you know, or you have to up your, your dosage. Take one daily. If not seeing desired results, you know, take three daily. They're just stepping you into more and more consumption. Like with the electric brand laxative we're standing by. Electric, quote in quotes. Electric brand laxative. So this is early 1900s. Electricity is moving into the home, into products. It is this magical thing. You flip a switch and your lights come on and your appliances are now electrified or not mechanical. So what in the world does electric have to do with laxative? And I don't think I, I, don't, think, I don't think I would want electric to, right? No, so I don't want to like, I don't want bolts of lightning coming out of my body. Electric brand laxative, formerly called electric brand bitters. This medicine contains alcohol, 18%. It's 36 proof, right? for extracting and preserving the medicinal properties and to prevent freezing. The magic ingredient, the secret sauce, is just alcohol. Hey, I, you know... Still is in a lot of things. Would you even care if you were constipated if you right. drank something that was 36 proof? So, you know, maybe, maybe that's the idea here. It's the family laxative. So an idea that, I don't know, it's good for everybody or somehow family makes it safe or something. I don't know why that's there. And then contains senna, rhubarb, cascara sagrada, hops, aloes, wahoo, dandelion, gentian, uva ursi, tansy, chamomile, and quassia. In preparation for this, there were some things I was looking up. And in 2021, the internet doesn't even have that word. <laughs> so, which is, I didn't think that's possible. <laughs> yeah. And all of this for just 60 cents. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, so we're moving on in our tour, and we have come to a product called, can you read those large words? I, I can, but do I want to say them? <laughs> Wisconsin worm candy. Wisconsin worm candy. So, yeah, they're branding to the, to the locals there, and they have a seal on there. That thing is so small, I can hardly read. So Wisconsin Pharma, Pharmacal, Wisconsin Pharmacal Company, Incorporated November 1896. This product looks like it's not much long after that. Um, a pleasant method of giving a vermifuge to children. Trying to treat worms, children. And you could just do it by candy. And here is the manual that came with it. And, it, and when we, we preserve these now, too, I mean, this is critical information, it's a big part of the story. So we, we pull these manuals out and we, and we don't, you know, we unfold them. This thing was folded eight times or more. We put them in these acid-free folders um, so that this information as well as the product package um, are preserved. So if you'll note, this is bilingual. So this is the English page, the Wisconsin Pharmacal Company's Goods Laboratory, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. When you see this trademark on its 
package, it ensures its purity. Our motto, the best is none too good. Okay. And then uh, the other half of it is in German. Of course. Which, yep, which would make sense. And uh, in Milwaukee, uh, most German city in the country at that time, uh, for sure. And so it's, it's bilingual. And so this is just the, the insert in all their products, telling all the products that they have and for all the issues that these products will address. Is there the an address on here? Because I just see, like, Milwaukee... You know, Laboratory Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah, I don't, I don't see any. I wonder if this. I wonder if that's. It's got to be on purpose, because they don't want you showing up with a box of half-eaten worm pills. <laughs> like, what's going on here? And again, the packaging is professional. The pack, packaging yeah, looks pharmaceutical. Mm-hmm. It, it does look uh, legitimate. This Laxatz candy bowel laxative was made by Dr. Shoup's Laboratories of Racine, Wisconsin who for many years cranked out products like this, and then they uh, got into legal hot water uh, eventually with their boastful claims, um, investigated and fined uh, three times for reckless and wanton disregard of their product's truth or falsity. We have many um, products by Dr. Shoops, but I just happened to pull pull this one here. It looks like little bits of um, uh, what is that shale? Scale? What is that? What is that? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, shale is a stone. Type yes, of a stone. that's what it looks like. Yeah. Shale. Yeah. It, let's see if it even has the ingredients listed here. Man, don't get that on your fingers. Egyptian senna, cascara sagrada, slippery elm bark. Powdered cane sugar, extract, imported French prunes, pleasant flavors, etc. A lot of these ingredients, you know, they didn't make this stuff up, right? Some of these are kind of ancient in their origin, and they probably certainly do um, have um, positive effects. Um, ancients around the world, traditional um, treatments, say here in in our region of the Great Lakes with American Indians. What you see here is kind of this industrialized marketing of, of taking these, packaging them. Maybe they help for this or that. And now you're pitching it as the, these things. You've heard of some of these wonderful, or you've heard that they're ancient or exotic. Well, now we're saying that these things can cure every, you know, everything. And when they list out we'll get to some of these, all the cures that this one product or this one potion can well, nothing could possibly do that if you thought for a second. So they're really just stretching it, stretching it, and pushing it. So they might be taking um, elements of a traditional cure and then just trying to, I'm going to use this word, leverage it, you know, and people's maybe they've heard of this and understanding of it, and then just try to make this into a, a super product. And again, I'm assuming, and you know what happens when you do that, but I'm yeah. thinking... What they say is in there is actually in there, but we don't even really know that. Yeah, I don't know how you'd know it. Who's around to test it, right? Um, you know, they don't have to meet standards of testing. There's not a Food and Drug Administration at this time that monitors the development, the efficacy of a product, as well as the safety of it. It may work, but it could kill you in, in two months. And so there isn't these trial periods. It's Buyer beware. Uh, and 
um, I suppose if you're the seller of these, um, these were the good old days, but I think most of us are consumers and, and having some consumer protections um, creates a, a trusting and basically at the end of the day a more healthy population and that's what we want. Since the beginning, it's been our mission to use material culture methods and practices to unpack and reframe objects. Each show is an invitation to take a closer look at something and see where those thoughts take you. Sarah Ann Carter is the executive director of the Center for Design and Material Culture. The center is under the umbrella of the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. For many of us, when we hear human ecology, we think home ec and wax nostalgic about making aprons and baking cookies in junior high school. But that's never what home ec or human ecology was, beyond the popular imagination. At the core of human ecology is an academic study of hearth and home. Its mission is to understand the complex relationships and interdependence among individuals, groups, and families, and to focus on quality of life issues through research, creative innovation, education, and outreach. While it may sound like an odd couple, material culture and home ecology go hand in hand in these endeavors. Both are pathways for us to understand our worlds. Thinking deeply about the objects we use in our daily lives help us see similarities and understand how we differ. Both allow us to connect to people in meaningful, varied, and human ways. Material culture is really a set of methods. It's not its own field, but a set of methods that can be applied to a whole range of material things to help you understand the world that those objects come from, to help you understand the people who made those things, to help you understand the ideas that they might embody. And when we think about material culture as a set of practices, we can think about it as a way to, to make sense of the world around us and to consider things as sources about the past, about the present, even about the future that are non-textual sources, but instead are the objects of everyday life. Sarah, is that the idea that I am looking through something through a gaze other than my own, if that makes any sense? Well, it's almost impossible to escape your own context and your own way of looking at the world. Um, so there are a whole set of methods, methodologies, ways of approaching objects that material culture scholars use to help them try to, yes, acknowledge their own subjectivity, their own point of view, but at the same time, also try to understand the world from which an object comes, to try to understand its context, the people who made it, the people who used it, the people who cherished it, the people who saved it, the people who wore it out, the people who threw it away, the people who decided to sell it or buy it. Uh, you can't escape your own point of view, but you can use different methods to try to understand those things. And in my own research, I think a lot about the history of those methods. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about the history of the object lesson, which, you know, 150, 200 years ago was a set of practices, was a way of teaching children about the world through the study of material things. And historically, this object lesson was a methodology that encouraged one to start with a material thing, to start with an object in a classroom setting, 
and to go from that object through a series of steps to understand what that thing meant, to really go from object to idea, and in the process to understand all of the meanings that could be associated with that material thing. And in the process, uh, children who were studying, <clears throat> sorry, I'm like sucking on my mask. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm slipping. fully vaccinated. I if am you'd too. Like to remove. You, is it okay? Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. But actually, we, it's all optional here. But I'm just so conditioned. I know. Me too. Um, where was I? So the object lesson was this classroom practice that was really premised on the idea that you could go through a series of steps in your, um, you know, close looking at a material thing, asking a thing questions, thinking about information that you could get through close looking and observation, thinking about information you had to bring to that thing, categorizing that object, thinking about, you know, what makes this a chair? What makes this bowl a bowl? What makes these pants a pair of jeans? Like trying to understand the things that you're looking at through categorization. And then finally, actually writing about it. So looking at all of the information that you've gathered through all of these steps and then turning that material thing that you're studying into, into a story, into a narrative, into a text. And in the process, the object lesson invites you to go from object to idea, from concrete to abstract. And it's a way of trying to make sense of the material world. And it's an historic material culture practice. And indeed, it's very similar to the way um, contemporary material culture scholars also engage with the world. It happens to be very similar to methods scholars like Jules Prown used in the Prownian method as a way of thinking about the study of objects. It's also the way I often teach uh, college and graduate students in my own classes in terms of moving from object to idea in the kinds of research that we do. So let's do a quick study, and I don't know if we can do a quick study, but let's pick an object and, and put it through its price. Let's use, you know what? Let's use my glasses. All right. So how would you approach this? Sort of walk me through your method of, of, of running it through these guidelines or these practices or these, these steps. So there are five steps in a classic object lesson. And at first, um, we would, you know, describe and look closely at these sunglasses, which are rather cool, I would say. You know, it's two-tone. We describe um, the materials. We describe what we see here, these really neat orange and purple shades. Um, we would describe the shape. I'm sure there's some specific language we could use to describe the shape of these sunglasses. Um, we would then think about some of the qualities of these objects. So these sunglasses are, uh, they're relatively lightweight. They're transparent. They are hard. They, um, they're clean, they are shiny. We could think about all of these different qualities, material qualities that these glasses have. Then we might move forward to say, what is some information we can get, you know, just from close looking? We could think about how they relate to the body, you know, how you could look through them. We could think about um, how we might carry them, how we might use them. We could think about all the information we could get just from looking at them. There is a... Um, a name in here, Amelia E. Sunglasses. There is some sort of serial number impressed into the plastic. We can look closely at um, the hinges and how they open and close. So we can think about these as things that are almost are able to be turned on and off. So they are in their you know active mode, they're in their storage mode. 
and then we could think about, you know, what what can we learn about uh, these things that we can't get just from, you know, close looking or just from the object. We could go to the library and we could research um, the history of glasses if we're making an assumption that these are these are you know these are these are a kind of glasses. These are sunglasses. We could learn about the materials that these are made out of. We could come up with some theories about how they might be made that we're looking at, you know, maybe some sort of injection molded plastic or something. We could look at how they might be made. We could look at the design. We could look at the history of sunglasses. We could do all of this research to bring information from outside the object to it, right? Um, then in the next step, we'd categorize it. We could put it into a whole category of objects, you know, called glasses. We could put it into a category of objects that perhaps um, are about the summer. We could put it into a category of objects that are about protecting your body. We could put it into a category of objects about color, um, perhaps thinking about colorways or, um, you know, what's an interesting color this particular season. We could think about them in a category of other objects made by the same company. We could think about them in a category of objects that cost the same. We could think about um, a category of lightweight objects that are transformable, they open and close. So we could think about all of these different ways of categorizing these sunglasses. And then we'd try to put it together. And of course, we'd have to do a lot more research, but we could think about this object, which might be a ubiquitous object. You see sunglasses, though rarely sunglasses as cool as these two-tone shades. Wow. Um, <laughs> you could think about, you know, what kind of story would you tell? You know, which of those categories is the most interesting? Which of those descriptors might be most exciting? Which could open up the most possibilities for interesting research or for storytelling? And then you'd put them together. And what this exercise does in a classroom setting is it helps my students and it reminds me that anytime you're going through this kind of material culture analysis, the words you choose, the questions you ask, the ways you look at it, the research uh, rabbit holes you decide to dive down and see what you can find, all of those choices are really making arguments and claims or allow you to make arguments and claims about the meaning of these sunglasses. So a description often feels like something that is neutral. I'm just going to describe what I see here. I'm going to tell you what, what this is sitting here in front of me on the table. But in fact, anytime you start describing, you're making claims about what is most interesting and me meaningful and most important about this object. And so thinking about material things from an object lesson perspective really helps each individual doing that work helps me as a scholar and a teacher make sense of my own assumptions and it helps me think about what am I really finding in this thing that is meaningful or where might I go with this or what questions might this open up. Even something very simple like a pair of sunglasses could open up a whole range of worlds and possibilities for research, for engagement. And while we could you know, think about these sunglasses as something that we're using in our everyday life. You know, what would this look like if this was sitting in an acid-free box in an archive? And, you know, you look up the accession number, you hand it to an archivist, and they pull out these sunglasses. You know, what questions would you start with? Where might it take you? In these ways, these material culture approaches can really open up new ways of thinking about the objects we surround ourselves with today, and they can help us connect 
make sense of the objects people surrounded themselves with in the past. And for my students who are designers, this methodology can also help them think about the worlds they want to create. You know, what objects do they want to create for the future? Because the way things look and are today, they look that way for a reason, but that's not the only way they could look and be. And rigorously asking questions of material things can really invite that kind of imaginative future-looking thinking, as well as that imaginative historical-looking thinking. And in a lot of ways, those things come together around the study of objects that can move through time in ways humans just can't. And I also think that when you're looking at objects, it's just not one way to get into that object or think about that object. Two different people can approach the same object using the same principles and practices and come up with two very different ideas of how it works within their world or where they place it within their world. When I see glasses, you know, mine are all prescription, right? So for me, I can't leave here without them. Whereas someone else may be able to be, that could be disposable for them. That could be something that, you know, you see so many times people, or I know people who wear, seem to wear a different pair of glasses every day. And then for a while, do you remember when people were wearing glasses without lenses? They fluctuate even within their own existence and their meaning. Yeah, of course. We didn't even, that's a whole other direction we could get into. We could think about the very specific function of these specific glasses. And that's something that we could dive into were we to actually look through them as part of our material analysis. You know, the world might look very different to me looking through these glasses than they would to you. Is there an instance, Sarah, that we can talk about where applying these practices becomes problematic? Oh, absolutely. And as a scholar of the long 19th century, I can point to many examples of these methods of this approach to studying the world being applied not to material things like sunglasses, but actually to people, to people's bodies, to body parts, and to, to individuals. And the object lesson approach was absolutely applied to the study of people historically. And that was then and now hugely problematic because it treated human beings not as individuals, not as individuals with their own um, you know, natural rights, but as material things. And when these methods are used in that way, you move quickly from what in the study of an object could be you know, a rigorous academic approach to really just um, trading on stereotypes and really historically almost creating some of the stereotypes that um, we might imagine. And, and what fascinates me about that idea is that, as you said, it's not new. It's almost as if, how can I say that? To make something you don't understand or to, to not fear something. I think a lot of problematic discussion comes from fear. If you don't understand something, you have to create a story about it that makes it makes it not necessarily easier for you to understand, but easier for you to put that person, that thing, into a category that allows them to treat, that allows you, and I'm saying the big you, the you in power, to treat that person in a way that somehow makes them safer or somehow fits a narrative that allows them to treat people in a way that makes it, I don't know, I don't want to say easier for them to deal with, but 
may be easier for them to put people in a situation where they don't have to provide a safe space, where they don't have to provide nutrition, where they don't have to provide any sort of freedoms. Because in order for me to be able to interact with you, I need you to be this thing that makes it okay for me to do these things. I don't even know if that made any sense. Because it's, it's hard to put this kind of ideal into words because as someone who understands it and experiences it to a certain degree, right. I'm trying to see through the lens or through the gaze of somebody who I can't reach because I don't think that way. Right. I think it's it's an incredibly difficult thing to talk about because we understand that many people approach the world, you know, through the lens of stereotypical thinking or they make assumptions that because an individual looks a certain way or dresses a certain way that they fall into a particular category. And historically, in my research on the 19th century, I found instances where the same object lesson method, the same five-step process that was applied to the study of things was applied to people, and it led to that kind of stereotypical thinking, that kind of racist thinking, which, is, which I think is what you're talking about, where individuals are judged based on the way they look, based on the way they dress, based on the color of their skin, based on assumptions made about their identities. And gender. And gender, and, exact, gender and disability, disability and all of, those, all, of all of those categories. All of the things. Right. And so historically, um, and some of the case studies that I looked at in particular were at the Hampton Institute in Virginia. Um, object lessons were used there as a mode of study in the classroom. And once you got up to um, the you know university level, when you got up to you know teaching teenagers and um, older students, the methods were not always as rigorous five-step process, but it was similar methodologies and similar ways of approaching objects. Those same methods, yes, were used to study the material world, but they were also applied to the African-American and Native American students who were in school there. And even, you know, um, Booker T. Washington, one of Hampton's most famous graduates, you know, referred to students coming out of Hampton and out of Tuskegee as living object lessons in terms of what could be made of those students. And when this approach is applied to people, Along with it comes this notion that you should be able to look at someone and see someone who appears to be, quote unquote, respectable, or look at someone and see someone who appears perhaps in a 21st century context, oh, to have, to have a good job, to have somewhere to go, whatever stereotypes, whatever language you want to use. And what's so problematic about that is um, those assumptions are being made not on who an individual is. They're not being made because someone has sat down and had a conversation with someone or understood someone's story, but they're being made solely based on how someone is categorized according to you know, visual and material evidence, that fourth step in the object lesson, where you put someone into a whole bunch of categories and then you pick one. And of course, in those instances, you could pick categories like fellow human being, fellow Madison resident, um, person who likes the color blue because we're both wearing blue shirts. You could pick lots of categories, but categories that could be connected to um, a perception of difference, perception of uh, not like me, 
perhaps not, um, not worth talking to, someone to not be listened to, those are also possible categories. And so when the object lesson method is applied to people, you can get tripped up in that categorization step. And that was hugely problematic in the 19th century, and it's hugely problematic today, even though we may not be using the object lesson language to talk about individuals, we're still going through a series of steps where you're making assumptions. Maybe you're looking closely at someone, maybe you're understanding something a little bit about them, but you're categorizing them. And that is something that we really want to try um, not to do. And that's why material culture should be used to study things, material things, and not human beings. But I think that I think that if we could use it to study on an to study objects in an attempt to find commonalities between people, I can see that when I approach an object, it's almost like I don't want to say what is it because I don't want to start an I I don't want to start a bunch of notions that are going to take me down a very narrow rabbit hole. There's an answer like what is it is this, and then you're done. Right, right. So, but you know. And I don't want to do that to people. Like, where was I going with that? People always make fun of me because I can talk to anybody about anything. If you're doing something that's interesting or if we're in the same place and we happen to start talking, I'm fine with that. And I wonder how different my life would be if I did put those practices on the people and start avoiding people because I think, you know, based on my own gaze or maybe even some experience that I'm going to receive the same from this person. And so it's really a hard lesson to unlearn when you're in a society where there's so much pressure to be a certain way, to be a certain weight, to be a certain height, to have certain things. My God, you have to have an Apple phone and a computer and the laptop and the watch and the, all these things that we use to categorize each other. Right. And then so often that's, that's communicated through the material choices that someone is making, right? Through the objects that they've selected, through the way that they, you know, style their hair, their clothes. Um, and those are material culture decisions as well as a whole range of other kind of, you know, consumer decisions too. Um, but of course, those decisions shouldn't define an individual and that shouldn't be all someone sees. And historically, the object lesson was used in such a way that it was presuming that an individual um, was worthy based on the way they looked. And this was particularly applied to people of color. Um, it was also applied to women in terms of presenting a certain kind of respectability and a way of carrying yourself um, and, and a way of dressing, which of course all of these things are, are bounded by ideas around class and gender and race and notions of respectability that connects to all of those categories in all sorts of complicated ways. But when the object lesson was applied in those ways, it was really suggesting what was possible for different individuals and in cultural contexts. And that, um, that's something that you're right when we think about the objects that people choose to surround themselves with today. Those things can be a way of self-identifying and categorizing oneself. Um, but we need to work to try to see beyond those markers. Um, those markers can be meaningful to someone, but the sports team that someone supports or the kind of phone someone has or the car someone drives, of course those things 
are meaningful and they can a person can use those things to tell a story about themselves. But that should be the beginning of a story, not the end of a story. And that should be an open-ended set of possibilities, not um, something that is definitive and defining, saying this person is, is an ideal, is an object lesson, is a type. We want to try to avoid that typological way of thinking. In March of 2021, six women of Asian descent were shot and killed across three spas in Atlanta, Georgia. The New York Times reports that there were nearly 3,800 different cases of hate incidents against people of Asian descent last year. Months prior to the shooting in Atlanta, Asian American community leaders were raising red flags about the surge in hate crimes. But instead of addressing the issue, the Trump administration stoked the fire, repeatedly referring to the coronavirus as the China virus, pushing the blame for the virus's rampant spread away from themselves. That is nothing new. Since at least the mid-19th century, American politicians have routinely placed their shortfallings and the nation's larger issues on minority and immigrant groups. Oftentimes, those who fell squarely in their crosshairs were America's Asian immigrant communities. Now, when we think about American state-sponsored violence against Asian communities, most of us immediately jump to Japanese internment during World War II, during which the U.S. government rounded up America's Japanese communities and imprisoned them without trial for years. But let's turn the clock back a bit further, to May 1882, when the U.S. government barred immigration from China and prevented existing Chinese immigrants from seeking citizenship. As Dr. Cindy Chang, a historian and professor of Asian American studies at UW-Madison explains, understanding those early roots of the Chinese Exclusion Act can also help us understand this recent surge in hate crimes against Asian people. So one of the things that gets a lot of attention or, you know, that gets talked about in history is that one of the most important immigration policies to be enacted federally is the Chinese Exclusion Act, because it was the federal first federally enforced exclusion of any group, right? And then it named one specific racial group for the purposes of exclusion. And so how did we get there? And what, you know, why did we feel that the nation's health and everything was going to improve with the complete ousting exclusion and barring of one group? right? And one racial group. And there were exceptions made for statesmen and, you know, educated students and stuff like that, but, and merchants, right? But for the most part, no more. And here, what we see is that there was a major economic recession, and there's always going to be some impetus, some uncertainty, some hardship that's happening within the nation, right? So there was a huge economic recession, one of the worst the nation has seen. And they wanted to say, well, what's going on? Well, when you're a policymaker, you don't want to say, well, like we allowed the railroad workers, you know, railroad industry to build unmitigated and we were driven by greed and we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> That's not what you're going to say. And then it goes against the kind of development and growth that they want. Right. And so you look at a particular group and you say, well, they're the ones ruining our thing because first immigrants can't vote. So it's really easy to target immigrants when some like an economic recession is happening. Right. And I know that it's very popular to say that, well, they're doing work that no other Americans want to do. When I teach this, I want to reframe it. I said, 
No, they're get they're getting getting paid wages that if you weren't that poor and that vulnerable, you don't need to take. The thing is, the general public would work on the railroad if it was paid a decent wage. That's not the issue, right? The issue is that to get greater profits, to make greater things, you don't want to invest and pay really high. So you have to be so vulnerable to take those positions. And usually immigrants, when they come, lack of um, language ability, all sorts of things, make them the most vulnerable group. But then when you are angry at the recession that it caused, you also get to pick on the most vulnerable group because they don't, they're not able to exert political power to fight back. And what you start to see, and so that's perspective of like big governments and big corporations. But what you start to see is that every day, other poor working ethnic white immigrants like the Irish immigrants at that time who were union workers, they were very close in terms of status in terms of Chinese immigrants, right? And for them, if you see all the speeches by these amazing union leaders, they were doing everything to attack corporations. And they always like make, you know, awesome like analogies, like they want to feed their bellies and you know, all that stuff. But at the end, it, it, you feel kind of powerless, constantly challenging like capitalism, constantly challenging larger structures. And they found that what allowed their unions to grow is to say, it's them. It's the person next to me. And if they weren't competing with the jobs, because that's what they see, that's more tangible. But if they weren't competing this job with me, right, then I would still have my employment. If they weren't, so instead of saying it's the corporations that's getting really, really, you know, bloated by uh, paying us less, they're saying, these people are so on the bottom. They're willing to work for slave you know, wages. They're working, they're willing to work for nothing. And they're harming me, you know, because that is more controllable. And so it's a it's a very because you know, economic, what we see during economic duress, it creates a lot of interpersonal tension. It does, right? And uncertainties breeds it. And so what you see is that the Chinese immigrants become a very easy target right, to cure all sorts of woes, right, and allows a whole set of people to, def they don't, they get to kind of like deflect blame. They get to stay, you know, a little bit on the sidelines while somebody else takes all the blame, right? And that, that nothing else gets talked about, nothing else gets mentioned except just the harm that these poor immigrants who, who we actively recruited to build the railroad, right? We actively sought them out. Now they're the ones that's causing the downfall of the economic recession. And um, no matter what, that's too simplistic of an answer, right? That this small group could take down a whole nation. And at that time they were but 0.2% of the total population of the United States. So yeah, scapegoating is incredibly powerful. It allows you to, um, you know, it allows you to deflect blame and allows you a greater sense of control. Despite that being a hundred years ago, more than a hundred years ago, so many of those debates and issues and talking points uh, from the 19th century are just so relevant to the modern day discourse as well. Because once again, right, what we start to see is um, if we want to talk about the current pandemic, is that we see that in 
actual ground level practice, there are many different kinds of origin points that we can point to, right? You know, right now people are still investigating whether it's, you know, something that came from animals like bats or some, you know, other theories like lab leaks or whatever. So that could be one origin story, right? But the other origin stories become policies that the government makes, right? Like how many people can congregate in an enclosed space? Should we have classes take place, right? Do we wear masks? And when you actually talk on the ground level of where people actually contracted, there's many different ground zeros in every different country, in every different neighborhood. Sometimes it's harder to say that, hey, maybe my actions created something, right? Maybe I shouldn't have gone to these things, right? Maybe that wasn't a smart thing, right? You say, oh, it's that. Because we're in the larger economic thing, there is a, a, a trade war going on with China. So there's a lot of things allowing us to say, hey, it's that's to blame, right? And I'm not saying that that's not an origin point. Of course there is. But for every, pen, you know, every kind of these, there's multiple origin points. And there's a lot of people who didn't catch COVID because of their individual and collective practices as well. So I think that, um, again, you get to, to kind of scapegoat. And I think there's also a tricky thing. There's an ongoing ways that we see people such that when you see a person of Asian descent, given immigration trends, your first question isn't, oh, I wonder if they're born here or maybe they just recently immigrated. The assumption is always they're from another country, right? And people are much more diverse than that, right? And so there's an association that somehow if you're Asian descent, um, you're first and foremost, you cannot possibly <laughs> be from this country. And there's an associate. So you look at this person and then you immediately think, and it's anybody who looks East Asian, right? It could be Chinese, it could be Koreans, it could be Japanese. Anybody who looks East Asian, you're like, oh, you're the reason for my rotten lot in life. Because once again, it's easier to do that. And this is very, very what we start to see is that during times of great uncertainty from economic uncertainty, health uncertainty, interpersonal relationships are very difficult, right? It creates a lot of of violence. And um, we are seeing a trend in general of like gun bonds, everything. There's so many reasons people want to say, you want to say that maybe um, not enough policing. Others want to say (laughs) um, lack of gun control. But at the end, we are, we are, we have gone through a period of great economic distress and trauma. And that is going to increase interpersonal tensions and violence. And that's not a new story. This is an old story. If you look at an economically distressed neighborhood in any city, interpersonal violence is always higher because economic uncertainties, uncertainties about life uh, triggers, and it's a context to breed interpersonal violence, right? That has racial dimensions, obviously. Right. So for me, this is kind of a continuity of what we're seeing is that there's something more in control when you look at the person next to you. It's something more tangible. So using that history of hatred and state sponsored violence against Asian communities as a as a sort of a guiding stone. What's the long tail effect going to be from this past year, uh, from the the COVID-19 induced surge in hate crimes against people of Asian descent? My, there's two ways to look at this in, in terms of long, the long haul effects, right? Once is that people say history repeats itself, 
history repeats itself if we do not and then you get another group that says history teaches us lessons so we could do differently, right? And they're totally related. And the point is, if we do not take the past the past year to the past 100 years, if we don't take these lessons, then we're constantly going to be in this cycle. At the end, society as a whole is affected negatively by this increase of interpersonal harm that has racial dimensions, that has all sorts of different kinds of things, Right. There's another long-term, which is we could try to do stuff to stop it. And for me, I'm still somebody who is going to, I'm not going to relent. I'm going to say the big fixes. Yes, I understand it's like to be kind and, and all those, they're, they're great suggestions, okay, <laughs> or just to be aware. But I'm kind of like, we as a society have to make a decision going forward how to protect each other better economically. We need to invest in affordable housing once again. Everybody is impacted because there's lack of affordable housing. We have to reinvest in public education so that people can become educated, get better jobs, but they could do it affordably. We have to reinvest in our medical system such that there's affordable healthcare for all. You want, <laughs> you want real fixes? You want long-term effects? It's going to have to start with these structural things to protect each other better economically as a society to move forward such that all of us, right? Because without this, it's like everybody is um, impacted and it will become a context to breed interpersonal harm that will definitely have racial dimensions to it, right? And so for me, those are the two long hauls. Either we could just keep repeating this cycle and see. Or we could really do something and take a moment and step back and invest in solutions that have long-term impact and, you know, long-term effects for our whole entire quality of life. It's like the saying, a rising tide lifts all ships. Exactly. And I think, I think if, when I say this, everyone's like, yeah, there's everybody will benefit as a society if we just concentrate our efforts to that, right? And I think that that's just one piece of different structural changes. One thing I was hoping you would weigh in on, and um, it sort of popped into my mind as I was doing prep for this show, was the ongoing debate over critical race theory. You know, a sort of a, a persistent theme throughout this entire conversation that we've had is those who don't learn from history are, are doomed to repeat it. And, you know, as it stands now, the debate over critical race theory could theoretically be applied and students could, in, in more conservative-leaning states, be barred from learning, you know, the, the unpolished history of state-sponsored violence and hatred against Asian peoples. Can you weigh in on that? What's your take on that? Right. I think that, you know, this is something that is a very, you know, question that impacts a lot of us. It goes without saying how the media and forms are interpreting what is critical race theory is not what it was, right? So that goes without saying, but that's beside the point. So let's, let's think about this. A lot of times when you're in a classroom, is it, you know, the bias of a professor or a teacher to, to introduce race into the equation. Let's look at our society today. Race is a part of the equation. <laughs> it's just whether or not you wanna talk about it truthfully and acknowledge it. There was slavery. Our first federal immigration act is to target a group of people and name them subpar. You should read the language of the law. It is, there's no question how incendiary and racist it was. Now. 
is it my bias that I'm introducing it or is the documents themselves telling you this story? When there's segregationist policies in neighborhoods that you live in that said that this is a whites only place, we don't, you know, whites, we also mean we don't want Jewish folks. We do not want immigrants, you know, we do not want all sorts of people, right? Am I, is it my bias, my personal bias to want race? It's like, no, race is in the fabric of everything you teach. It's whether or not you want to talk about it honestly. But the question is, do people teach this? And that's, it's the effect that I think people are concerned about. When we teach about slavery, it's a historic event that occurred. And once again, like I, po- I pose, as students who are sitting there, when you learn about this, is it so that you want to now hate others? Or is the lesson to teach this so that we do not repeat this again? When we teach about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, am I teaching this so that the only end effect is just like, is like, oh, this, it's not just to say it's terrible and like, it's to produce hate, which is what they argue. Is like, I think so many of us who are historians are teaching this. We do this so that that kind of history doesn't repeat itself. You as an amazing interviewer wanting to bring in the anti-Asian assaults that's been happening. Are you doing this so that, you know, all the end message is so that we're supposed to like be, you know, it's not just to produce anger. It's to say like, how do we stop it? How do we move forward? And how do we not do this? Does awareness generate productive, beneficial results? And so my question to people is teaching, generating awareness, being truthful about what happens. Are we so afraid of the truth that truth only bears negative impact? The truth can bear positive and generative transformative things. And I am somebody who believes in the transformative potential of education, meaning I believe that awareness and knowledge can generate a better society, generate better awareness, generate better knowledge for us to move forward in a positive and more socially just way. So I think for me at the end is people have to do some deep thinking. What do you think the impact of education is? Is teaching the actual events, (laughs) right? Whether it be a war, whether it be a thing, is it to, is it always negative? And I'm like, I don't think so. And I think that, you know, that's something for us to really, to really reevaluate our relationship to education and our education to truth and facts events that occurred, I still hold that it has transformative potential for social justice. You've been listening to Refrangible, a production of the Center for Design and Material Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. A special thanks to all of our guests who contributed their time to this episode. Joe Kapler, Sarah Ann Carter, and Cindy Chang. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. You can also give us a shout out on social media and let us know what you think about the show. Just tweet at UW underscore CDMC. And sadly, dear listener, this is the end of our first season. We'd like to thank those of you who have listened since we started this project and welcome those of you who are just discovering us now. If you haven't checked them out yet, there are three other episodes in the Refrangible feed. You can find all of our episodes and transcripts from each show online at cdmc.wisc.edu forward slash Refrangible. Until next time. 
I'm Jonah Chester. And I'm your host, Jonathan Fields. Thank you for listening.